This is Pat from Massachusetts. That's Carol from Sarasota. <laughs> okay, it says it's live, but don't start yet. It was Pat, not Pam, right? Pat, if you're watching streaming live. So, Facebook is live. Okay, checking YouTube. We had a bug, and that's why he's doing this. We started a minute early because there was a bug. There's something up there now on the TV screen. Okay. Oh, we just need to make sure YouTube works because they had a bug in their system. So, okay, well, Facebook is on. All right. This is great. We got him over there in Israel checking us out here. It's amazing. Okay, YouTube has not come on yet, I don't think. And what he has to do is manually turn it on to uh, the system. Okay, he says something here. Live! Okay, we'll get started then. All right, let's see here. Um, we have a major announcement. This is important for everybody to remember. Has everybody got their ears open? Online too? Okay, daylight savings time. Saturday, do not forget. Turn your clock back, go to bed an hour early, and be at church on time. Anybody shows up an hour late will receive a wet noodle. Um, a whipping with a wet noodle. Okay, so that's first. We have um, Mary Jo. We all know uh, from the Sunday morning, you wouldn't because you don't attend here, but Mary Jo broke her hip. I mentioned that last week. She's doing fine. Oh, she is at Blake Medical Center. She worked there for 25 years, and so she's got plenty of people. You don't need to drive down there from Sarasota to visit, but if you send her a card or if you call her, she's in room 370. I know she'd appreciate it. And um, Miss Magnuson, yesterday I went to visit her, and she was looking wonderful. Oh, I, they oh. may come. If they do come, they'll be a little late, but she was looking very good. Oh, We're good. very grateful well, about that. Wet uh, no wet noodle for them. Okay. Um, yeah, anyway, so they were looking good. And then we have um, broken and busted ankles. I'm not going to give their names without permission, but one is in Australia and one is in um, Arizona. And we have a busted elbow, which we know about down in Naples. So we want to pray for those poor ladies. And uh, let's see here. Uh, I saw a post from Isaac once again in Uganda is sick. This is like the 15th time this year he's gotten the flu now, but he's had uh, the yellow fever, typhoid, whatever. He's had uh, malaria. He's had a couple times. The poor guy works himself to death. We want to keep him in prayer as well. Um, so we'll do that before we get into anything else. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come to you and to pray for these people and anybody else that I failed to mention. Lord, please uh, be with them. Give them comfort in their times of affliction. Give them healing. And uh, when they're better, I would pray that they would have the wisdom to thank you for their health and their well-being. And Lord, we're certainly thankful for this class. We're thankful for your precious word. It's a joy and an honor to be here with all these wonderful people and anybody that's online that joins us. We're thankful for that. And Lord, we just love you. We love you so much. You're so good to us. Your grace is just boundless. And so we just want to praise you and give you the glory you're due, asking you to lead this class and keep us from anything that would be inappropriate as far as doctrine or as far as our uh, handling of your word. And Lord, we thank you for this. We praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we have um, this year or this day in Christian. Today is what? The 1st of November. Okay. Oh, that's another. While I'm turning to the 1st of November, not only do you have to be uh set your clocks properly for what it, wherever you go to church because we got a couple people who don't attend here actually quite a few but um uh you want to make absolutely sure that if you have not voted that you vote on tuesday 
Okay, if you are a resident and you are uh, legally allowed to vote here, we would ask that you would vote and do what's proper, remembering proper morals, which is uh, uh, not to be found in one particular party. Okay, and then they're it, not that the Republicans are perfect. They got lots of messed up ideas in the Republican Party, but at least they are holding to God's word as far as the abortion issue. And we'll pray that the year ahead will have changes in that particular issue where uh, sanity will be restored to this nation once again. Anyway, 1 November, he was proceeding toward ordination in the Church of Scotland, which is now completely apostate if you've seen any of the updates, but when he experienced the first of several mental breakdowns. Alexander Cruden was known as being mentally unstable, clueless in affairs of the heart, and an expert in Bible scholarship, quite an improbable combination. Born in Aberdeen, Scotland in 1699, Cruden completed a Master of Arts degree at Marischal College in Aberdeen and was proceeding toward ordination in the Church of Scotland when he experienced the first of several mental breakdowns. The breakdown was triggered by a disappointment in love, and he was placed in confinement for a short time. Once recovered, he moved to London, where he worked first as a tutor, then as a proofreader, and finally as the French translator for an earl. After his dismissal for not knowing French well enough, he opened a bookstore in London in 1732. I'd say that's a problem. You hired as a translator and you don't know the language. That could be a problem. The bookstore was a success and earned him the honorary title of bookseller to the Queen. In 1736, he began work on a concordance of the Bible. His habit of meticulously tracing words through Scripture and his extensive study of the Bible made him an eminently qualified for this endeavor. He completed the first edition in just 18 months and in 1737 published Cruden's Concordance. Unfortunately, the book was not initially a financial success, causing him to lose his business. Cruden also once again unlucky in love, this time making unwelcome advances toward a widow, triggering another bout with insanity. Again, he was placed in what in that day was called a private madhouse. After, yeah, after a few weeks, he escaped by cutting through the bedstead to which he was chained. <laughs> in 1739, he issued a pamphlet on his confinement entitled The London Citizen Exceedingly Injured or a British Inquisition Displayed. He subsequently brought a lawsuit over his confinement that he pleaded himself and lost. He then published a pamphlet of his trial. In 1753, he was once again placed in an insane asylum for a short time. In between confinements, his behavior could be described as eccentric at best. Cruden believed that God had appointed him as the public censor, especially regarding profanity and Sabbath keeping. Well, he didn't know his scripture very well, did he? Anyway, <laughs> on the second issue, not the first. Uh, he took upon himself the title Alexander the Corrector and in 1755 unsuccessfully petitioned Parliament to confer this title upon him officially. In this self-appointed role, he went about London with a sponge, erasing from walls obscene graffiti and whatever else did not meet his approval. He solicited students to serve as his deputy correctors. He also unsuccessfully ran for parliament and made frequent unwelcome and embarrassing contacts with various single women, including an attempt to marry the daughter of the Lord Mayor of London. To finance his misadventure, he published pamphlets about his causes, including three entitled The Adventures of Alexander the Corrector. Wow. Cruden finally found success as a proofreader, first for a daily newspaper and then for several editions of the Greek and Latin classics. His acute attention to detail served him well. 
He continued to revise his concordance and published two later editions in 1761 and 1769. These later editions produced both profit and recognition for Cruden. To this day, they remain in print as the standard concordant for the King James Bible. Yeah, although unquestionably eccentric and troubled, Alexander Cruden was a devout Christian and a gifted scholar. On November 1st, 1770, he died while in prayer and was found still upon his knees. Eh, they say Martin Luther was pretty close to crazy too, but he did marvelous theology. Well, I mean, for his time, I, yeah. nowadays we understand a lot of his errors, but still, I mean, he got away from Catholicism to some extent. So anyway, reflection, how did you react to the knowledge that Alexander Cruden had bouts with mental illness? What lessons can we learn from his life story? God used Alexander Cruden in spite of his limitations, and he can use us in spite of ours. Proof? Right there. The Lord said, verse uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my gracious favor is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. Okay, that was kind of a crazy one there. But yes. Anyway. I have one of those concordances. Do you? Yeah, I've had it for years. Wow, I'd never even heard of it until now. The only two I have are uh, Robert Young's Analytical Concordance and um, Strong's. Those are the only two I have. Explain the glasses. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can't see with these glasses. The, the, the writing in that is so small that I just can't see anything. So, But I did. I went yesterday. Good. Yes, I oh, went yesterday. Good. So I will have my first pair ever of subs uh, prescription glasses. I had to take out a bank loan. I mean, I'm telling what? you, oh, it was like 25 grand to get a pair of glasses. Not really. It was, I, but you know what? Oh, those those frames are $137 with the discount. Those are 472 And I'm like, they're the same cheap things that you buy, you know, when you go to buy your readers for a dollar, same frames. And they're like, oh, those are $465 lenses. I, it's Costco, a ripoff. What's that? Go to Costco. I'm not going to Costco. Hedico's insurance it took care of some of it. So, but yes, I will have a real pair of glasses for the first time in my life. They anyway, save you lots of money. Uh, well, I'm sure they would. You know, if you go to Thailand, you can get prescription glasses with any frames on this planet and get them for twenty five dollars. Yeah, it cost you more than get over there. Yeah, but you get to go to Thailand. Who cares? Is there something we should know about Costco? I he, talk to him afterward because I don't go to Costco. China, I, I just shipping transport company. Yeah, I, I have yeah, no I have oh, no yeah. idea. All I know is that I don't buy stuff in bulk. Oh, That's all. That's oh, I'm not a bulk buyer. So, okay. Oh no, I have no idea. I just don't buy in bulk, and so oh, okay. if I go there, then I'd be tempted to do that, and I don't want to do it. Oh, Snickers bars. Let me get 700 of them. <laughs> okay, so we are in Romans chapter 16. We're almost done with the book of Romans. What? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Psalm 118 and 1989. I lament. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues in all generations. You established the earth and, it's in, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day. For all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, it would have perished for my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have pres preserved my life. Save me, I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me. But I will ponder your statutes. All perfection I see eliminated. But, you, you, but your commands are boundless. Boundless. Okay. Boundless. Here's the deal. I really, really hurt my back three days ago. Uh -huh. Very bad. For the last two days, it has been terrible. Today, it's better, but if sitting here too long starts to get, we may close early. I want to apologize in advance. 
I really did it in. But I've been working through it, trying my best to, to not take anything, and uh, it, it is better today. But sitting in this chair, I can tell already, it's, it's starting to bother me. So, well, the roof again? No, no, no. I don't. I have no idea what happened. I mean, I was sitting in the chair typing on Monday, and my back started hurting. And Hidako knows by Monday night, I was I, I could not get up. I actually took ibuprofen, was it? Whatever she Whoa. gave me. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. I never take pills, but I. I had to. Anyway, here we go. Romans 16.10. Greet the palace, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Anyway, that's okay. Yeah, I, I would think it's Aris, not Aris. But anyway, I, I don't know that for certain. I'd have to look to at the me. Greek. But yeah, it's all Greek to me. Anyway, let's see here. This is uh, Romans in, very close there, so I'm not going to reread it. Romans 16.10, commentary. Paul next requests greetings. I'll tell you what. Yeah, no, there's no point in going back because it's just greetings for several several people. Okay, um, now, greetings to be extended to Apelles. Like many others, this is the only time that this guy is mentioned in Scripture. But what an honor to be singled out of a congregation recognized by the hand of the great apostle and be eternally recorded in God's superior word. But not all mentioned in the Bible are mentioned favorably. In fact, many times the opposite is true. And so the honor to Apelles is even greater because he is noted as one approved in Christ. Absolutely right. The Greek word used to describe him is dokimon, meaning a type of approval which indicates testing. His faith was tried, it was tested, and he was proved faithful in the test. We can speculate all day as to what type of a test he was given. Loss of family, work, torture, imprisonment, whatever. Whatever it was, it was enough to have Paul single him out as having passed the test. May we be found so worthy and so noted. After Apelles, Paul next requests greetings for those who are of the household of Aristobulus. This may seem curious, but there are several possibilities that would precipitate such a comment as this. One, Aristobulus, though not being a believer, could have been extremely well known in Rome. Those in his household then would be those who were either family or slaves who had received Christ. Two, Aristobulus, whether a believer or not, could already be dead. If this is the case, then greeting only those who are of his household would make sense. Or three, Aristobulus could be a noted Christian evangelist or missionary from Rome, but living away from Rome. If so, then it would, wouldn't it make sense to greet him along with his household, or it wouldn't make sense to greet him along with his household. So it, they're saying greet the household, but we don't know why. Okay, so it could be one of those three or something I didn't think of. Anyway, for one of these or whatever other reason, the household of Aristobulus is singled out for a hearty greeting while not giving him, greeting him specifically. Okay, life application. Paul took time to remember those who were under others' authority, even if he didn't mention them by name. Pastors have families, missionaries have children, and so on. If you are greeting one, then take time to greet them all. They will remember and take to heart that someone cared enough to think of them as well. And speaking of missionaries, I won't say where from or, you know, but we have our friend that's uh, that comes quite often. She will be here soon. Yeah. She will be here soon. I didn't know that. I had no idea she was coming until I read her thing yesterday. And then he came in and asked if I'd seen it. So good news. Can't wait. Wonderful stuff. We'll have somebody else at the projects to walk around and pray with. Oh, she's she's marvelous. What a marvelous human being. Oh, I'm so I'm just elated. When I saw that she was coming, I was just like dancing. All right, 1611, which is 
the year of the King James Version, right? 1611 King James Version. There you go. Okay, 1611. Okay, Greek Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Okay. These are going to go really quickly. They're just going to, I'm sorry, there's not a lot of commentary when you're greeting just individuals, but continuing on with his greetings of so many in Rome, Paul now directs his attention to Herodian, stating that he is my countryman. This means he is a converted Jew, but possibly even of the same tribe, Benjamin, as Paul was. This can't be certain, however. The name Herodian may also may lead to the family of Herod mentioned in the Gospels. This also is only conjecture, but the name may imply this. After Herodian, Paul next asks for greetings for those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Again, speculation must enter into exactly what this means, but a good guess is that Narcissus was either dead, famous, or otherwise noted. In his house and in such a state, some of the people there were believers, but not all. Whoever he was or whatever his state, he was well known enough by name to generate this type of note. Life application, there's nothing wrong with identifying people who are close to you in an elevated manner. This doesn't mean they are somehow better than others, but they are of note to you. Paul has been careful to make mention of others in a way which brings people to mind, while still not diminishing anyone that he may fail to acknowledge. But you can see, especially in Romans, he tries to not fail to acknowledge. He tries to, yeah, he, I don't want to do a double negative, but he doesn't want to miss anybody. Thank you. He's very careful about trying to get everybody included in this. And after Romans, we won't see that again. We'll see a couple greetings and that's it. Some no greetings at all, but uh, I'm talking about final greetings. But uh, yeah, in Romans, he really goes above and beyond. So uh, let's see here. 1612. Greet Tryphena and Trichosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend, Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Okay, Paul has more people to send greetings to in verse 12. Three names are given, and again, speculation is mostly what abounds concerning them, as nothing else is noted about them in Scripture. The three of them may actually be those mentioned in the previous verse, which said, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Paul may be singling out those who are of the household of Narcissus. In other words, it may be a continuation thought. Or he may be going on to a new listing. The names Tryphena and Tryphosa are believed to be slave names, but they also may be the feminine of the Jewish name Tryphon. The two names are similar enough to arouse the thought that they were closely related, probably sisters and possibly even twins. Whatever the truth of their situation, they were noted as having labored in the Lord. They were diligent in their duties and model examples of what a Christian should be. Paul next addresses his desire for the Romans to greet the beloved Persis. As she's a woman, he was careful to use the word thee in place of my. In so doing, he was eliminating unnecessary speculation concerning any type of close relationship which would certainly come about. Some ancient heretical writings and even modern scholars trying to find, try to find an inappropriate relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. If you don't know about that, just type it in online and see what people try to insert there. In the same way, they would also perversely attempt to do this with Paul if his words could be so manipulated. But he was careful in what he conveyed concerning her. He notes that she was one who labored much in the Lord. 
The added much for her may be because the first two women were named together, which would form the thought of a competent team. In the case of Persis, he then may have added in much to distinguish that her efforts were notable through her actions alone. Again, almost all that we can guess about these three is mere speculation. That's all we can do, and, you know, I can think up my thoughts and read them to you. And uh, other than that, you know, there are at times you will see with some people, especially we saw this in the Acts studies, where later writers, church fathers and other historians will say, well, this person was this, or he became the pope of that, not really the pope, but, you know, the, the head of this or that or one thing or another. Even that I would take with a grain of salt, but they're usually pretty reliable. These people, nothing else is written of them, not in scripture, not elsewhere. So all we can do is just try to think, why would he use the terminology he does? Why does he use an article instead of she, the, etc.? So there you go. Life application on that. In today's world of social media and easy communications, we can easily make a comment which could be misconstrued. That never happens, though, does it? Never. Okay. Photos can also be seen as inappropriate if the context isn't known concerning what happened. That happened to me one time. I had a lady go ballistic on me. I was at uh, Anna's with a couple people. One of them was a girl I was in high school with. And I can't remember what. Anyway, we kind of got close to each other like one was kissing the other. We were still way far apart. You know, it was obviously a setup picture. This lady went ballistic. She went ballistic on me. And I, whatever, you know, I mean, it, it was obvious if you looked at the picture, it was a made up photo. It was, you know, somebody I went to high school with and... It, Whatever. Some people just have to take things to extremes, but whatever. So I took the photo down and just just to avoid that kind of complication. But I mean, there were 10 people standing around us. It wasn't like just the two of us there or something. Anyway, uh, life application in today's world of, I said that, um, uh, let us endeavor to use our words wisely so that we don't somehow make others feel that we are acting in a way contrary to our Christian calling. However, it is true that anyone can find fault for any reason. So be ready to defend yourself when your words and actions are in line with the Bible. Now, having said that, a couple things happened this week which are kind of interesting. It, it gives me a foot in the door for next week with one of them. Uh, I couldn't have done anything about it right then because there wouldn't have been any belief. But yesterday morning, was it yesterday? It was, uh, t today is Thursday, so it had to be two mornings ago. Tuesday, when the, the dumpster guys come by, the cardboard guys and then the glass and paper and our glass and plastic and all that two different dumpsters come the guy that picks up the glass and the plastic and everything he uh he's become a real good friend of mine i see him every week he comes pretty much at the same time and fortunately though this week he came he forgot to stop at the mall and he went down to turtle beach and he went up to the village and he realized he had to come all the way back to get us and it's good that that happened but normally i don't see the dumpster guy that picks up the cardboard it's a big dumpster and um, so he uh, happened to come while I was there because the sun is coming up later and I'm taking the photo later. And so I get to the mall and I do the same thing I do every single day. I walk to Anna's dumpster. I pull out their garbage from the day before. They have three different things of garbage. One of them is all their bread, right? And so I go through it and I pull out all of the heels because they cut off the ends of the bread and all you've got is the middle because people don't want the heels for the sandwich. And they throw away usually 300 pieces of bread. It's a bunch. And I take it and I throw it back behind the mall and the birds come and I've got flocks of birds that come. And anyway, and then there's usually the ends cut off of like the, uh, the roasts or whatever, the ham and everything. They cut off the ends. And I take all that and I throw it in the parking lot and I got these um, uh, kingfishers that come and they gather around me and they really? eat that. Yeah. So this happens every day. 
But I was out there doing that. I was throwing the bread. And, and what I do is because Saturday and Sunday, the dumpster's been taken out early. I don't have any bread and I want the birds to have bread. So I save some. I, I, I put it into one of the plastic bags and I save up two or three things full and I keep it in this one place. And then on Saturday, I go grab one of those and I throw up for the birds. So they have bread. Okay. The dumpster guy who I've never seen before pulls up and I'm sitting there doing what I'm doing, barefoot, gross clothes, right? <laughs> Obviously, he's thinking this guy's a bum. He picks up the dumpster. I wave to him. He picks up the second dumpster and then he pulls up next to me. And I'd already walked over to put the bread where I hide it, where the, you know, the rats or whatever won't come and get it. And, oh, we also got raccoons that come out even during the day and eat this. But he beeped at me and he went like this. Oh, no. And, yeah. I walked over and I said, what's up? He said, here, this is for you. And he gave me his lunch. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I said to him, uh, I said, uh, I work here. I said, I'm just feeding the birds. And he says, oh, great job. He gave me a fist bump and he was like, this is wonderful. I was not going to tell him that I'm a preacher and that, you know, because he's still thinking I'm probably a bum. Anyway, it's good that the other guy who I've come to know, because that guy thought I was a bum for months, he didn't, you know, he would be driving by. And finally, one day he saw me out mowing and he said, that's so nice of the people to let this guy mow, give him a little bit of money. And then I finally met him because his schedule changed to when I'm there. And so he, uh, we, we got talking and we see every single week, he's a Christian, we talk. Anyway, I told him what happened, and I know he went back and told this guy. Uh, so if I see him again, now I have an out to talk to him about the Lord. Okay? That's the point of the life application here. So you want to use the circumstances, and I could not have done that. I could not have talked to him about the Lord when he's handing me his lunch. He, he would have thought this guy's insane, and it wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? So, and then the second one, there's a guy that's been in front of the garbage can by the road at you know where they suck out the uh the you got the vacuum and all that the air you fill it up the little station out at 7-eleven so he's been sitting in front of the garbage can there for about three weeks now every day on his uh moped and he came up and finally he's seen me take out the garbage after a couple of days he doesn't think i'm a bum anymore so he said hey how you doing there i said i'm all right and then i said wonderful day beautiful i said just blessed you know and uh then i brought up jesus really quickly and he went ham and haw and so I walked away and then I came back and I said, you know, I, I, I addressed him about the issue. And this is one bitter guy. I mean, he's just bitter. And so anyway, I was able to give him some things to think about because he says, I know there's a God. There's all this complexity. There's this beauty. This world is fitting in harmony, but he's just bitter. He says, I can't believe that this God is competent enough to, uh, to take care of things. He allows the world to get ruined the way that we've done it. I said to him, well, whose fault is that? I said, if this God is smart enough to do all of this wonderful stuff, do you think he's not smart enough to understand that we are doing what we're doing? If he wanted to end us, he could, right? And he's never thought clearly on this. He's had all of this stuff that he, he probably reads online and, you know, whatever. And so I just gave him something to think about. And I said, listen, the Bible gives you the answer. He says, no, it doesn't. He says, I've got a friend that's read the Bible his whole life. And he says, it's just full of contradictions. And I said, well, you will find a contradiction if Luke says that Jesus is, you know, walking in uh, Samaria and he tells somebody something. And then Paul says something here and he says that Christ was crucified and rose again. And he says something that's exactly the opposite. Of course, it's going to be a contradiction because the guy isn't taking it in context. Jesus is speaking this here, and now Paul is explaining what Jesus has done and the fulfillment of it here. So, of course, you're going to have a contradiction if you don't understand the context. And he goes, little light bulb comes on. He's like, oh, you could see these made sense to him. 
So we had a little bit of a conversation and I said, listen, what I'd like you to do, if the world is so bad and if you think that it's never going to get better, what I would like you to do is to read Genesis 1 through 3. It'll take you eight minutes. I said, and I want you to then go to Revelation 22. And as you're reading Revelation 22, I want you to keep saying to yourself, yet. It hasn't happened yet. I said, you've got the way things were and the way things will be. And the story in the middle is telling you how he is going to get to this point. I said, that's what I'd like you to do. So everything in context, life application here, when you're talking to people, cut out. Let me read that again. In today's world of social media, because he was, oh, he said DeSantis called our, uh, you know, this uh, black guy, uh, what's his name, Gillum? He said he called him a monkey. I said, that's not true. I said, he said, let's quit monkeying around. He says, well, he shouldn't have said that. I said, do you know that they've got recordings of him saying that at old talks? It's a thing that he says. Is he to stop saying his regular jargon because he's now running against a black guy? Is that what he's supposed to do? He said, I didn't know he did that. Well, I said, you've got to take things in context. This guy has not been thinking clearly. Anyway, you've got to cut through all of this type of stuff in life, and you've got to get to the meat of the matter without being belligerent. So now I saw him again this morning. He didn't want to talk about the Bible, and that's fine. He will eventually. But he talked about what he does. He's an instructor of barefoot skiing. He's been doing it since the 70s. Yeah, barefoot skiing. Yeah, butter skiing. Yeah, and so he talked about it, and I listened, even though, you know, I've got work to do. I, I, I wanted to be patient so that he knows that I care about it. Talked about his daughter, who he taught to barefoot ski when she was eight, and he went through the whole thing. It was wonderful. Okay? Cut through the nonsense and get to the, the heart of the matter. That's the point of the life application. Okay? So, there you go, 1613. Rufus, chosen in the Lord his mother who has been a mother to me too okay and i'm going to read mine because it's a little different but it says exactly the same thing group rufus chosen in the lord and his mother and mine a little bit different okay so um paul's words are now directed to a greeting for rufus chosen in the lord the name rufus means anybody Red. who said that Red. Who, uh, who you said that how did you know that <laughs> you took latin uh, pat knew what rufus meant that is Outstanding. Good job, Pat. I, I did not expect to hear that called out. Very good. Rufus chosen in the Lord. Okay, it means red. This implies red hair, and it was a common name of the time. But what may make this particular Rufus exceptional is what is found in Mark 15:21. Okay, let me get you back there. Mark. You're gonna know exactly when I start reading it. Oh yeah, that guy. Mark 15, 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Okay, it's possible. We don't know this for certain, but it is possible. Simon, what were you going to say? Right. Oh, okay. Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross of Christ, and his two sons are specifically noted by Mark which indicates that they were probably well-known by him at the time he wrote his gospel. So there's a logical connection. This then brings in the great, great possibility that this is the son of the man who was there at Calvary. Paul says he is chosen in the Lord. This is a way of saying that he is approved by Christ and set apart as a saint. The same type of terminology is found in Ephesians 1 verse 4, which says... Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay? When one calls on Jesus Christ as Lord, they become members of Christ. God knew the selection from before the foundation of the world. 
but it isn't known to us until the moment we come to him. There is a marvelous synergism going on when a believer is directed from before the creation itself to the moment where they call out to God in Christ. This Rufus was one such person now noted by Paul. That's like I said to that guy. He says the world's all messed up. God can't be competent, but he's competent enough to create the universe, but he can't handle a bunch of people on this planet. It, it, it's, it's not clear thinking. I'm not trying to belittle the guy. This is the standard process of people's thoughts. You hear it all the time. Well, where is God in this? Why doesn't God care? Well, on and on, you hear about people accusing God. Somebody dies in the family and you say, well, I'm mad at God for this. Why? Why is it God's fault? People come and people go. Dogs die. Everything happens. And, you know, all of a sudden when it affects us purposely, uh, uh, personally, then it becomes an issue. I, everybody here, unless you're a vegetarian, has had something to eat, which was alive a couple weeks ago, right? Somebody could have loved that cow. Or, you know, little kid, I don't want you to slaughter that one, Dad. I'm sorry, it's got to go to the... And here we're eating it. It doesn't mean anything to us, but it means something to us. The reason why we care about things is because it's personal. When something becomes personal in our lives, we have an attachment to it. When you've got a favorite bowl, which is nothing... Right? A favorite bowl? And you break it, you think, oh, I'm so, I've had that since I was a kid. Well, it has no more value than a bowl, another bowl, right? But it's something that's personal to you, and so it has value. All right? Chosen in the Lord. This person has value because God personally created him. God knew before the creation he would accept them, and so it has value. All right? The Lord says that some people have no value because they have turned their back on him. There's no personal relationship, right? If they come to him and they turn around, they will have value to him. Value goes both ways. Go ahead. You had something. I've heard said that Rufus was a black man. Well, he could be, but from, Simon, from, from Cyrene, it's possible, but he was a Jew, so he probably wasn't. Well, people he, people he say never, things I've like that. I've never seen a red-headed black man. Well, exactly. You don't see it. And that was going to be my point on that when you said that. People will say he was probably black because why they want to include different colored people into the gospel message. And so you hear that all the time. He was a Jew. Guess what? There were Jews up in uh, Greece. There were Jews up in, uh, let's really quickly, let's see where some of the Jews were that happened to be there at this time of year. Okay. All right. And you, you tell me, were they all of the color of the nation that they were in? Here's what it says here. It says, um, give me just a second. I'm going to read you some places where they were from. Um, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya and Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, okay? The Jews pretty much stayed the same color where they were. They would intermarry with their own tribes, okay? Now, over the years, some Jews have come in, and we have some Ethiopian Jews, and we've got Chinese Jews because they were exiled to the farthest points of the earth, and eventually the gene pool runs out, and they have to intermarry. But at the time, that wasn't the case. So when people say that Simon was probably a black guy, that's not taking it into account that the Jews that were living in there, there were a lot of them down there in that area, okay? And you're right. You don't see a lot of black people with red hair. I had a couple of them that I went to uh, school with that were black guys with red hair. Really? Okay, and they had freckles too. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, Southern blacks is a very popular name now. That's right. But anyway, it happens. But anyway, I I just disagree with that premise. Is because they're from that area, they're going to be that color. The people that come from up in Greece weren't whatever, you know, the, the lighter olive skin. They had the darker olive skin like the Jews of Israel because they were Israelis. They just happened to be living up there because it was part of the dispersion or whatever. Okay. 
but it is possible. I just discount it because I just don't think that's correct. And I think your, your analysis is correct. Anyway, um, so uh, along with Rufus, Paul extends his greeting to his mother and mine. It certainly doesn't mean that they were brothers, but that the mother of Rufus acted as a mother to Paul. He's tenderly noting her as if she were one of, if she were his own mother. This is similar to what Christ did for John when he was on the cross. This unnamed woman was a mother to Paul just as Mary became a mother to John. Okay, life application. The Bible is full of wonderful patterns and details, but we can't find them if we don't study it. Never tire of remembering every name, number, and location. Eventually, patterns will arise to help us see a greater picture of God's wonderful hand in redemptive history. And the Bible's just so full of them. We can go on and on and on. It's just an astonishing book. Absolutely astonishing. I, I know I've said this before, maybe not in this class, but uh, when I was at Temple Baptist for a couple of years, because my children went to West Florida Christian School, and, you know, after I met the Lord, that's where I would uh, go. Very legalistic church. But the pastor was a really nice guy, Bill Ross. Oh, he died on... Four, 4 November, Sunday, he'll have died. I'm sorry, 7 November. So it was 7 November of uh, 2004, not 4 November 2000. Anyway, because he was a wonderful man. 7 November of 2004, he died. So a couple more days, and I'll send his daughter an email and reminder. But um, uh, anyway, he knew a guy that had a photographic memory. The guy remembered everything he ever read. He could read a very, very, very technical manual, say on chemistry or something, and he'd have to read it twice, and then he would have it memorized. But most things he read once, and it was done. He would he'd know the page, he'd know the paragraph, everything. He was a very, very intelligent guy, plus he was, had a photographic memory. He said to Dr. Ross one time, he said, I have read the Bible again and again and again, and I cannot master it. It's the only book that does this. He says, I cannot master it. So that's a real statement there for somebody that could read any anything and just remember it. So there you go. Um, that's why we have to just keep reading it. Read the word, read the word, keep reading the word because I'm telling you what, it leaks out a lot more than it stays in. I don't care who you are. There is way too much in this book to say, I've got that mastered. It's just no way. All right, 1614. Greet the syncretists, Hermes. Atrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Okay, pretty good on there, Chief. Let's see here. Five more names are given in today's verse. I say today because I typed these one day at a time, and I tried to take out all the todays, and I forgot to do that one. Anyway, nothing more is known about any of them except a few extra-biblical sources which may or may not be accurate. However, it does note that Paul asks for greetings to them and the brethren who are with them. This then could mean that they were leaders of individual home churches or gatherings. And if this is so, it would be like writing a letter to the people of Sarasota, Florida and recognizing individual churches by noting their pastors, okay? This isn't uncommon even today within larger denominations or among non-church organizations. And so it's a distinct and even likely possibility. Because Paul knew them individually, he may have met with them and encourage them to start a home church or group as they traveled back to Rome. Whatever the case is, Paul wanted them to be greeted. Okay, that's all I have. I, I five names, two paragraphs. Sorry, life application. What? Twins there again. Twins. Hermes. Yeah, Hermes and her. Yeah, it could be. You never know. We'll get into a couple of really interesting names in a, a couple of a couple verses. 
Taking note of the uh, leader of an organization often implies greeting the people within the organization. I get that all the time. Somebody will send me an email and they'll say, hey, Charlie, you know, uh, say hi to the people at the Superior Work, right? Like that, okay? So I, it, that happens a lot. Okay, should you address a group, however, an additional few words, such as those who meet with you, will make those within the group feel welcome. Paul was careful to be attentive to such things, and we should make a note of it and apply that as well. Okay. Oh, boy. 1615, go ahead. Philologus, Julia, Marius, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints with them. Okay, mine says his sister and Olympus. Yeah, does yours have an sorry. and? In? Oh, it does. Okay, just wanted to make sure. I was just gearing up for the words. For the words, and you did a great job. It was outstanding. Everybody stand up and applaud. Okay. Um, uh, let's see here. As with the previous list of names, none of these are mentioned elsewhere, anywhere in Scripture. Philologus and Julia are probably a married couple, or they could be otherwise related. The names, the name Philologus comes from the Greek word philos, which means anybody? Beloved. Beloved. Okay, very good. And logos, or logos, actually. Word. It's what? Word. word. That's right. Logos. It's not logos, but that's okay. Philologos, but... Thus, his name would mean something like fond of talk. This is probably a name he acquired later in life unless he was a noisy baby at birth. <laughs> Along with these two, Paul mentions Nereus and his sister. Because of stating this, the conclusion that Philologus and Julia are married rather than siblings or of some other family-type relationship is the most likely. Next, the address is made to Olympus. These are all singled out because Paul had befriended them somewhere along his travels. But along with them, he notes any that he hasn't met or who he is unaware of with the all-inclusive and all the saints who are with them. In this statement, he is ensuring he doesn't miss someone and thus offend. Having now gone through the entire list of names that Paul is familiar with, this is a good point to note that the church is up and running in Rome, and there is no mention of... The Pope, Peter, yes, good job. Peter in the entire list. Thus it negates the Catholic view that Peter was there and in charge as the first Pope. There are many other such confirmations throughout the New Testament that Peter was not ever granted such authority. It is only by misusing scripture and individual verses, verses <clears throat> that such a concept could be held to. Rather, the church was organized, efficient, and without the need of an everlasting dynasty. Instead, the saints were the church, and it is to them that Paul has made these many greetings. Good job on that. Good, and somebody else said it over here. Life application. Tradition is often based on a misuse of scripture, or it is entirely the invention of man. Either way, overuse of church tradition and a lack of adherence to the words of Scripture are two of the most destructive impediments to sound theology and proper doctrine. The more tradition, the less Bible is needed. Let us not err in this way, but let us hold firmly to the Bible as our final authority on all matters of religion. There's a saying, goes back, you'll know this if you took Latin, ad, fonta, ad fontanus. To the source. To the source, to the fountain. That's right. And so during the Reformation and at other times, they have said to the fountain, to the source. And that means we want you to uh, uh, not hold to church tradition, not hold to catechisms, not hold to any of these things. They're fine if 
they don't contra contradict the word of God, but they are not fine if they start establishing precedent within the church. As we have seen again and again and again, the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, you know, they have the um, Book of Discipline, right? Well, what do they use in their church? They no longer use the Bible at all. They use the church, the Book of Discipline. They say that homosexuality is not acceptable in the church Book of Discipline. And then they have a vote and they say, it is now acceptable in the church book of discipline. That becomes the standard for the church. Instead of saying, this is our standard, the church book of discipline will never contradict the word of God. They don't even use it anymore because they know that they can't make the perverse changes in their denomination if they hold to the word of God. It's not possible unless they take it out of context. And even then, you'll never find that in there. It's not possible for somebody that has a modicum of theology in their head to come to the conclusion that homosexuality is acceptable within the church it's completely not okay but church book of discipline now allows that and so the methodist church has now done that and they abortion is a-okay they go and bless planned parenthoods they do these things one thing after another it's unacceptable but that's why we don't go to books like that we go instead to the bible ad fontanus all right so um let's go here um 16 15 16 16 16. Thank Greet you. One another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Do you know that I, I don't think I say it in my commentary and I want to get this out. I was at the church, you know, I used to have my sign, Bible questions answered, don't oh, be yeah. shy. People would come by. And of course, you'd always get people that wanted to talk about their church. They were visiting too. And one guy came up and he said, well, we're a, a church of something, brethren, some brethren, something up like Philadelphia or somewhere. And he said, immediately, like the first thing he said about his church, and we hold to the holy kiss. And I'm like, well, I, I, maybe I talk about it here, but oh, yeah, okay. I just want to let you know that um, uh, it, it, he made a point that this is prescriptive in the Bible and we hold to it. So I'm going to give you my thoughts on this. Did now. he kiss you? He didn't kiss me. <laughs> Paul has completed his long and meticulous list of those he singled out for personal greetings. Now, in the same thought, in order to promote the general good of the congregation and to continue the warm and deep-seated display of love, he tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, everybody ready? Get ready. Here we go. Um, this was and still is the custom in many parts of the world. Have you ever been to France? My brother and I went to a French lady's house yesterday. She's very good friends with them. They've known each other for years. I won't say any more than that, but when we went there, the first thing they did was kiss each other on both cheeks, okay? He speaks French to her. They are great friends, okay? When his father was alive, you'd see them doing the same thing, okay? If you go to an Arab country, they kiss each other on the cheeks, okay? So everybody understand. They, that is a cultural thing that they are doing, okay? This was and still is the custom in many parts of the world. The kiss is intended as a greeting. Just in Western nations today, we do what? We shake hands, right? Or if you're in the superior word and you want a hug, we hug. If you don't, that's fine. But, okay, the, um, the kiss is an intended greeting, just as Western nations shake hands today, or possibly hug, depending on familiarity. In the Far East, a deep and respectful bow is given in substitute of this. I went up to my Korean pastor. I hadn't seen him since I left the Korean church. Uh, oh, it was about five years ago, and then I saw him. Uh, at a, uh, I, I did a wedding of a couple of the people that were in the church. I married them, and all of the Korean church was there because they still attend there. And anyway, that was up in, was it Tampa? St. Pete. Anyway, um, so uh, when I went up, oh, I, I was so happy to see Pastor Ye. I went up and I gave him a big hug, and he turned as red as a beet. 
He just, I really embarrassed that guy. They don't hug. They are not huggers, okay? Anyway, it was so good to see him, and, you know, he understood. But uh, Korean people just don't hug. They're like they're like Japanese. They bow, okay? And if you're in Japan, you have to know the bow, because if you bow lower than the guy and he's supposed to bow lower than you, then you've offended him. It, it goes on and on. So you have to learn the customs of what's going on, all right? Anyway, so but that's what they do. Very rarely will a Japanese shake hand outside of business meetings, okay? It's a very rare thing. They usually just bow to each other and whatever. Okay, so although Paul's letters are prescriptive, and we want to understand that, Paul's letters are prescriptive. What he says is prescriptive. Intent must be considered. Is Paul mandating that all people in all churches meet one another with a holy kiss? Okay, remember he's writing to these people in this area, and this is something that they would do. Okay, the answer is no. The reason why this is important is because what I've already been saying, and I'm going to say it again, let me get that in order, um, is because there are small pockets of churches, and this is where I learned that from, that mandate this even today and even in Western societies such as in the United States. However, the intent of the kiss is of greeting is cultural. It's not merely biblical. Proof of this follows from the first kiss noted in the Bible in Genesis 27, 26, when Isaac blessed his son Jacob before he departed to Padan Aram, okay? From that point, the kiss is seen among the covenant people and among those who aren't yet in the covenant, thus demonstrating the cultural nature of the greeting. Everybody got it? There are people that aren't in the covenant that are kissing each other in the Bible, okay? So it's a cultural thing. It's that part of the world, all right? Uh, let's see here. It is to be used in the same way as we use a handshake. When Jacob met Rachel, without knowing her in any familiar way, the first thing he did was to kiss her. If you do that here in America, you are going to get a lawsuit slapped on you. That's all there is to it. She had no idea who he was. He went up and he gave her a big kiss. Okay? It is not what you cannot take what is in this verse. And there are times where people will say, well, the hair thing in 1 Corinthians, uh, what is it, thir uh, 14, that's cultural. No, I'm sorry, that is not. That is a standard biblical precept, okay? The same thing with 1 Timothy uh, 2, 11 and 12 about women teaching and having authority over men. That is not something that is cultural. That is something that is prescriptive for all time in the Bible, okay? When it comes to the kiss, this has to be taken in its intended context or you're going to have a problem. As I said, you do that in a Korean church. You go up and you give a holy kiss and say, this is what the Bible says. You will never go to that church again. They will have a guard there to keep you out. I, it, it, believe me on this. Okay, so um, that was first thing they kissed in 2 Samuel 20, 9 and 10. Let me take you there. 2 Samuel 20, 9 and 10. Let's see here, 2 Samuel 20, 9 and 10. It says, And then Jacob said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him in it with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay? Got to be careful with that holy kiss in some context, okay? Uh, the following exchange begins with a kiss of greeting and ends in death. In 1 Samuel 20, 41, David and Jonathan, close male friends, gave a fraternal kiss in accord with the culture before departing. Okay? Guess what people do with that? Thank you. Yes, they do. I have read homosexual commentaries on the Bible that say that they were 
Yeah, okay. Taking completely out of its intended context. It is absolutely appalling, but yes, they do that. And then we have in Proverbs 27, verse 6. Whoops, Psalms, Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, um, Faithful are the words of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Yes, okay. So there you go. Um, Proverbs 27, 6. This uh, demonstrates clearly that the kiss is cultural because even enemies will kiss rather than shake hands. This is seen in these parts of the world today. As I noted, if you see the king of Saudi Arabia and he's greeting another person from Oman, what are the first thing they do? They kiss each other. And they may not even be friends. They may be enemies at this time, but that is how they greet. Okay, so um, exchanging kisses with shaking of hands in this proverb would hold exactly the same meaning and intent. And as a premier example of this, read the, this exchange between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7. Let me take you there. Luke 7, 43 says, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more, and he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven. The same loves little. And of course, the most famous kiss in history is recorded concerning Judas' betrayal of Jesus and reflects the sentiments of Proverbs 27, 6 perfectly. It is important then to understand the cultural nature of this admonition by Paul, lest we get swept up into what's called, begins with an L, ends with what? Legalism, thank you, legalism, okay. Uh, let's see here, over something which is actually not intended for all cultures and in all situations. If a person with an immune deficiency, we had somebody in that church when we first opened, she couldn't hug anybody, she finally had to stop coming because people wanted to hug and she just, you know. Anyway, um, were to use this verse in a prescriptive manner, he or she could soon be dead from receiving the germs of others. Finally, the kisses in these and other verses throughout the Bible, which are between men and men, such as David and Jonathan, are not in any way intended to convey the perverse sin of homosexuality, as modern liberals often imply. They are merely cultural and welcoming displays, just as handshakes are today. To imply this in their writings shows a disregard for God's order in the natural world. Paul ends the thought with, the churches of Christ greet you. This carries on the warmth that has been transmitted so far. He's gone from personal greetings to personal recommendations for continued harmony and love, and is finished with the extended greetings from many others. He has been careful to show that the bonds of Christian love extend out in all ways and to all those who are believers. Life application. If you are in Rome, do as the Romans do. If you are in Japan, do as they do. It wouldn't be appropriate to go to a church in the Far East and attempt to hug, kiss, or shake the hands of another unless they first offered. Trust me on this. I spent six years in Japan. I married to that pretty lady right there. Okay, and she never lets me hug her, ever. Okay, that's not true. Anyway, um, trust me on this, okay? And if you go to Indonesia, 
before I went there, I was assigned in Malaysia for three years. And I went to Indonesia and they give you things. The CIA does briefings on what you should and should not do in certain countries. They said you are never to touch the head of an Indonesian, ever. Touch their head. Do not do that, okay? It's just one of the things I remember. I thought, I wonder why, but I didn't ask. It just said, don't do it, okay? And when my grandmother uh, grew up in China, she said the worst offense was to call somebody, do you know what it is? It's an animal. It's got a shell on its back and what? Turtle? turtle. Yeah, you call somebody a turtle. She said that was horrifying. You would never call somebody a turtle. That was like us, I, what would we call them? A pig maybe or something. But she said, yeah, you don't call somebody a turtle there. Anyway, um, so you just, you remember these things, but uh, there we were always told what not to do when you went to another country. They had that standard CIA briefing that you would read of all the cultural stuff and, you know, uh, you, please eat this even if you don't want to because you're offending them if you don't. And don't use forks and don't use utensils in this country. You know, if you're, uh, well, you're in Malaysia, all right? We would go to a wedding. There were no forks or knives there. You would go and you would eat with your hand. You know, you have, and they'd serve chicken whole, right? So you'd have to just tear it apart with your fingers and you never touched anything with your left hand. Okay, you could only because the left hand I they know don't. That, but okay, how yeah. do you get the? the That's <laughs> what I'm saying. You have to learn to use your fingers like this, and you have to just tear things apart. You never touch something with your left hand. You never greet anything, anybody with it. You never hand anybody anything with it. So your left hand is basically hidden. Okay, and you've got this food sitting in front of you, and you got to eat it somehow. You just get it. You watch them, and you learn how to do it while you're watching, and then you might get something to eat because it's. You have to learn these things. Anyway, she got it. She knew right away what I was going to say. Anyway, um, so here we go. Uh, where was I? Japan. Oh, yeah. Um, the intent of Paul's words is promoting warmth and harmony between believers, not causing offense. Like poor Pastor Yi when I hugged him. Oh, the poor guy. He's probably still red. Anyway, 1617. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from that. Okay. After as many greetings in this chapter, and then his note to greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul now introduces a stern warning. He begins with, now I urge you. This is his way of saying, pay heed lest this become a real problem. And his urging is to note those who cause divisions and offenses. And I'm telling you what, they creep up anywhere and at any time. All right. This is an obvious problem within any church where there are jealousies, backbitings, feelings of intellectual superiority, or a host of other prideful issues which arise. It has been the impetus for the destruction or division of countless churches over the millennia. He has been writing throughout this epistle of the need for harmony between Jew and Gentile and the need for stronger the stronger brother to accommodate the weaker one. Remember that especially chapter 14 accommodating the weaker brother. His points of doctrine have been given to show us the correct path to righteousness and to sanctification, among, among many other issues. Violations of these prescriptions are what he is referring to now, as he said that those who cause the divisions and contentions do so contrary to the doctrine which you learned. If you hold the doctrine, you're not going to cause these type of divisions. You are not going to do it. The problem in churches when people cause divisions is because they have not sat down and studied the Bible properly. They have not then applied those precepts to their lives. That's, that is all there is to it because he has given us the doctrine of what to do. As I said, we can go back really quickly and we'll just pick one or two of them here. Um, 
Who are you to judge another servant to who his own mastery stands or falls? Indeed, he will be able to make him stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it to the Lord, not to somebody else, to the Lord. For he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. All right? And he goes down. Let me see if I can find this really quickly here. Oh, yeah, we'll say verse 14. This is 14, 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, here it is. If your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Okay? And then he says, um, let me see if I can find one more thing that I'm thinking of. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. This is verse 20. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Okay, he goes on and on. We, it took us weeks to get through that. On and on. He talked about offending others. If you learn that doctrine and you apply it, you're not going to have the problems that he's warning against in this verse right now. It will not happen. Okay. So uh, where was I? In other words, this has nothing to do with those who uphold and defend the principles of the Bible. In fact, in such cases, the use of the Bible in an offensive manner is expected. It's expected. The church is not meant to wait for troubles to arise and then defend against them. They are to proclaim doctrine clearly and without restraint. If you go to a church and they're saying, well, we're now going to uh, ordain brother blah 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 who's uh, homosexual or have his husband come up and we'll ordain them you're to get up and you're to defend the Bible and then walk out of that unholy place okay offense is what the Bible proclaims I mean that's all there is to it that's, uh, Paul says that the cross is an offense an offense however if someone comes in with contrary doctrine the church should already be able to recognize it and weed it out they are to avoid them. Vincent's word studies, speaking of the divisions and offenses, says that the article with each noun points to some well-known disturbances. In other words, he was warning against what had already entered into the church. Hence, the strong words given throughout his epistle. They are expected to use his letter as a basis for their actions against the offenders. Now that the epistle is written and in the Bible, we should be using it in a proactive manner. That's why we have Bible studies. No church should fail to preach on doctrinal issues consistently and with the intent of keeping the body pure. We did that two weeks ago when we did the Trinity. That's a doctrinal issue. All right. You don't always have the proper time to introduce every doctrinal issue, but eventually we go through every single one of the major doctrines in our sermons. We may just touch on it. We may go into great detail on it. The one on the Trinity was probably a little shorter than it should have been, but it covered good bases, I think. So, but you know, that, that is what you are to do is to have doctrine and to teach that doctrine in addition to your sermons, okay? Not just life application and, and God's gonna bless you. He's gonna bless you. He wants to bless you, all right? That, that doesn't solve anything because people go home and they actually have trouble. They actually lose their car. They actually get in a car and fall and break your hip. These things are going to happen in this life. If you keep telling people that it's all gonna be good, and it's not good. You're not feeding them. With, you'll be the fellow on the moped. Yeah, you'll be the fellow on the moped. Absolutely right. Angry at churches. Angry that God isn't in control of the world. 
Don't be the guy on the moped. That's going to be a new saying in the church. Don't be the guy on the moped. All right, now that's you know he he. he I'm serious. Uh, one of these days he is going to come into this church and he's going. I I told him I said he was talking really badly about the Catholic Church and I said I'm right behind you there. I said half of the church, if not more, is from out of Catholicism. They understand that what is going on in the Catholic Church is not appropriate. I said don't base all of your feelings about religion. He says I hate religion. I said I do too. I said I can't stand it. It it is an obstruction to having a relationship with God trying to convince him that the Bible is more than just rote religion. It's something that God wants to deal with us in a personal manner with it. When you start inserting religion, whether it's Buddhism or Catholicism or, you know, the Episcopal Church we went to when growing up, you've fallen away from a relationship with the Lord. And that's all they talk about is a relationship with the Lord. That's the funny thing about it. You go there and that's all they talk about. And yet there isn't one. It doesn't make any sense. But when you get into the Bible, then you have... I won't say it. it just oh, I did that. oh, oh. Anyway, um, so uh, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah. However, if someone comes in contrary doctrine, I said that. Okay. Yeah, they are expected to use his letter as a basis for their actions against the offenders. Now that the epistle is written, we're to use it in a proactive manner. No church should fail to preach on doctrinal issues constantly and with the intent of keeping the body pure. Paul speaks in exactly this manner to his protege. Timothy, thank you. If anyone teaches otherwise, this is 1 Timothy 6, and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness, godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Absolutely. Get away from those people. On the other hand, in Philippians 3.17, he gives a helpful way to be proactive in such manners. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Yes, absolutely. And so we have been shown both the right way to walk and the way to avoid heading down the wrong path. Both of them illustrate a reliance on the word of God and proper instruction. Failure to adhere to these will inevitably lead to disorder, disharmony, and divisions. Life application. The Bible is an instruction manual for life. Anyone who would start up a lawnmower and then intentionally back it over his own foot would be considered adult. What would you do that for, dummy? Right? Okay, guess what I've been mowing for the past uh, four days? Your feet? I've been mowing the lawn behind the mall with grass that's oh, over three feet high. Yeah, I don't cut it all summer because it's, it's, it's a marsh. So what, what, no, what I do is I take the lawnmower and I hold it up, oh right? God. And I have to walk it first and then I have to, no, this had nothing to do with it. It already hurt. It's the working that has helped it. it, it that's what's actually gotten me through it. This happened while I was typing on Monday. But, yeah, I have to walk it first with it up, and it just cuts like a, a bush hog, and then I go over it a second time, and I'll have to do it one more time. And uh, so, anyway, the point is that when I do it, I have to be careful because I'm out there barefoot. But, you know what? Rick got really down on me. He, 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 you weren't there, but maybe he. Uh, we talked about this at mission work. Rick got down on me. He was riding his bike by when I was out in the front of the mall, and I was mowing barefoot. And he came up and he says, you're such an idiot. You're mowing barefoot. And I said, you know what? When I was in the Air Force, they used to, you had your boots, right? And you had to keep them shiny. And then they would 
make you put these metal things over your boots. Okay, you'd clamp them on. And one, it would scuff up your boots, and then you'd get bad points when you got back to the barracks. But these big metal things were over their boots, okay? Guess why they stopped having them do that? Anybody guess why? The amputations from the metal. Yeah. The people, one of the guys got his foot into the lawnmower. And that metal, I don't care how thick it is, the torque on a lawnmower is so powerful, it cut right into it, and that metal bent into his foot, and it just destroyed it. And I said, you know what? If I pull a lawnmower over my foot, it's probably not even going to touch my toes because my foot is lower. If I have shoes on, it's going to get caught into the shoe and it's going to pull my foot up into it. I said, I'm safer not wearing shoes than I am wearing shoes because it doesn't matter what kind of shoes you wear. You can wear lead shoes and it's going to cut through those. And he's like, you know, I never thought of that. And I said, I have. Okay, there you go. So if people think you're adult because you're not wearing shoes. Guess what? Those shoes are not going to stop. You need a Troy weed thing for... Or, uh, I have a weed whacker too. Bush, I'm talking about a bush hog. Well, that's all right. I'm not going to go buying something for that. It's only once a year, and then it'll be it won't grow all winter. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I, I have to be careful back there because the grass is tall. It is a marsh. Sometimes I sink up to almost my my knee. But I will tell you this: there are all kinds of snakes back there, and unfortunately, I've ran over a couple of them, and that's always sad. But they're water moccasins, and you know they'll get you. So you got to be careful when you're back there. But I don't care. So, Whatever. So Send me home to dad. Anybody who's watching online, they, they, they don't see all of you. But just before you got into this whole shoe thing, yeah, you dropped a piece of paper <laughs> and you picked it up with your feet. Oh, <laughs> like, no. going like, shoes are a handicap. They are a handicap. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's that's true. I, I wasn't, I didn't think you were paying attention to that. But I do that behind, if you ever see me drop the paper, the process I'm always dropping it. Yeah. Nobody sees me, but I just pick it up with my feet. And you never, I never bend down to pick it up. You so would never talented. know it. So yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but yeah. Okay, you want talent. I've done this before, but there's new people that have come in that haven't seen this. Everybody put out your hands, okay? Everybody put out your hands. Okay, turn your hand backward. Stand backward. Okay, now take your hand and put it this way. Okay, grab tight. Grab tight. Okay, now pull your hand through. Got it? Now put your elbow through here. Can. Come on, you can. No, I can. We got anybody? You get your help, and then over your head. Oh my gosh! There. Okay. There. That's my only talented thing. I can't do anything else of any consequence in this life. But got to get the elbow through. You can do that and pick up. Yes, I can do that and pick, and I can wiggle one or both ears at the same time. Okay, let's go. Um, let's see here. Life application. Oh, I've already read that. Um, uh, no, I haven't. No, life application. The Bible is an instruction manual for life. Oh, yeah, I, I stopped at the lawnmower. Uh, anybody who would start a lawnmower and then intentionally back it over his foot would be adult. The instructions and the little warning labels clearly show that this isn't a good option for toenail clipping. But this is exactly what we do with the Bible. We ignore its instructions and march headlong into life's troubles because we fail to heed the manual we have been given. Pull out the manual and read it daily. For best results, repeat several times each day. Just like shampoo, several times each day. All right, we're going to do one more and then I'm going to finish because my back is starting to hurt. It's just, you know, it just is. Okay, and this is a long one, so that'd be fine. We might even make it through. 18. But such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Okay, this one reads a little differently, probably more literally. 
to the Greek, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Okay, for those who are such, Paul takes us back to the previous verse. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. These people have motives that are intentionally self-directed and destructive of the church. As he says, they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. The people Paul speaks of here are comparable to the Judaizers he mentions elsewhere. These people were coming into the churches and teaching that one had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Everybody remember that? That's Galatians, it's Acts. This is stated or implied in several epistles. It is also noted explicitly in Acts chapter, Burke, Acts chapter, he's over there playing. Okay, 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, what are you doing over there, Bert? Because I know you got something going. I dropped my Oh, he dropped his pen. I got shoes on. Oh, you got shoes. He's trying to pick up his pen with his shoe on. It ain't going to work. Okay. Um, all right. So, yeah, Acts 15.1. If you don't get circumcised, you cannot be saved. And there are people that still teach this. They still teach this in the Hebrew Roots movement to this day. They teach this doctrine when Paul clearly says in Galatians, if you get, allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ means nothing. That's right. Zip means nothing to you. Nothing. And they, they will completely ignore that he says that. You are a debtor to the whole law, he says. Imagine that. So we have one thing that says this in Acts, which is clearly refuted in chapter 15 of Acts. Then we've got Paul, which says, who says at least 452,000 different ways throughout his epistles. But Galatians is almost solely based on that premise. And yet people still teach that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Can you imagine that? Okay. Uh, they were preaching a false gospel of works rather than grace in order to steal away the brethren for themselves. If you think this was just a warning for the church in Rome, think again. It is one of the most common heresies perpetrated in churches today. Legalism and adding to what Christ has done infects almost all churches in one way or another. There are very few churches that don't add something into their doctrine. Very few. Because people come in with their own baggage, they come in with their own backgrounds, and they say, I don't want anybody else doing this. And with all good intention, they say you're not to do that when it's not something that's in the Bible at all. That is a very common thing for people because, you know, pastors were one time not pastors. Right. Most of them came out of some sin, and they met the Lord, and they said, I want to tell people about Jesus. And they bring in what happened to them, and they say, don't do this. When, in fact, it was them that had the stumbling, and other people may do the same thing and not have any stumbling at all. Okay? That's just an example there. But it says um, legalism and adding to what Christ has done is uh, common in almost all churches, and it is usually introduced from within. Those who teach such things, as Paul says, serve their own belly. They are directed to the lust of the flesh as if they were feeding on those they pull astray. Factions within the church are very often started by such perverse people. They hear something they don't like, and regardless of the truth, we were talking about that in a different subject earlier, they countermand it with their own inventions of piety and supposed honoring of God. We were talking about um, conspiracy theories and things, and there's one particular issue that I happen to be aware of, and uh, one other person in this church is aware of it, and yet people 
believe that it's the worst thing in the world to uh, uh, participate in this particular type of thing. And they just they tear other Christians apart over it, having no idea what they're talking about. Doesn't matter what the issue is. Just we were talking about that there. Anyway, and Paul tells us how they do this. They do it with smooth words. This is the Greek word, krestologias. This is its only use in the New Testament, and it is directly translated good speaking. Regardless of the truth, they utter words which sound authoritative, honoring of God, pious, and noble, but in fact, they are words which are contrary to any of these. They have no authority because they countermand what the Bible teaches. They don't honor God because they call into question the truth and veracity of his word. They aren't pious because true piety would be honoring of God, not reviling of his word. And they lack any sense of nobility because they fail to give God the true glory that he deserves. Instead of glorifying him through the reception of grace, they dishonor him by proclaiming a righteousness of self, not of Christ. In addition to the smooth words, they utter flattering speech. This is the Greek word eulogias. It means eulogia, anybody? What? To eulogize, adoration or praise. That's right. When we eulogize someone at their funeral, we put aside their faults and failings and heap praises upon the departed. And if you go to a funeral of a non-believer, you always hear the same thing. He's in a better place. Yes. This is what they do to those who want to, they, they want to capture. With pats on the back, smiles from the lips, and hearty praises, they pull away the unsuspecting for themselves and heap up condemnation in the process. It is through these wicked devices that they, as Paul writes, deceive the hearts of the simple. The word deceive is exapatosin. It doesn't just mean to make a false impression, but to intentionally lead another astray. It is to beguile them. The implicit warning here is that we are to be well-versed in our doctrine and well-trained in proper theology, lest we be swept up in their lies. As Paul warns in Ephesians 4.14, being properly trained is vital so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Think of a ship on the ocean and the wind is blowing all over and they're just being blown around by the trickery of men and their cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Instead of remaining simple, we are to be well-trained, ready to defend, and on the guard against the devices of the people Paul warns about. If we look at the church as if it were planet Earth, we could see how these people disrupt. On the surface of the planet are storms, floods, famines, and the like. These would be comparable to those outside the church who attack and harm. But inside the earth are other forces, much more destructive, volcanoes, earthquakes, and other uncontrollable things. These come about unexpectedly, and they cause massive harm. This is what we see in the people Paul is speaking about. They appear to be a part of the church, which has a good purpose, but they spew forth only destruction. Life application. We're saved by grace through faith. If we are saved by grace, then what can we add to that? nothing. If we attempt to do so, then it is no longer grace and our salvation is to be questioned. Have I truly trusted Christ alone for my salvation? If you feel obligated to do something to merit God's favor apart from trusting Christ, you are heading down a very bad path. Hold fast to what Jesus did and be ever so grateful for his glorious provision. Right? Wonderful stuff. We're going to stop there. It's a couple minutes early, but I'm going to go home and get off this chair. Please.
Somebody's got the sneezes. You okay there, Carol? I'm not contagious. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Anyway, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, don't no forget. No holy kissing for you. No holy kissing for you, Carol. That is absolutely out. Um, you have uh, one thing to remember for Saturday. What is it? Time. Turn your clock back, fall back, be at church on time. Spring okay. Forward, Spring forward, fall back. That means we're going to lose an extra hour of sleep. So no, if no, any, we, we do this yeah, time. Think about it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. So we lose it. Oh, that's good. I don't have to go to bed an hour early then. Because I was going to say, everybody go to bed an hour early. And I get, yeah, if I did that, I get two hours. Of sleep. Yeah, wonderful. Oh, oh. Anyway, here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just this wonderful word. Thank you for Paul's exhortations, and though we've spoken firmly about things today, it's because your word speaks firmly about those things. Help us not to waffle in our convictions, but to hold fast to this word, to cherish it, and to apply it to our lives. And Lord, there are people that struggle, and we need to have empathy with them, we need to have sympathy with them, and we need to be able to put them on the proper path. But there are others that don't struggle, but would rather use your word in a contrary manner or reject your word completely. And with those people, we have to treat them in a different way. Help us to be strong in that and to never compromise the Bible for any reason, for any reason in our lives, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's uh, business relationships, whether it's money that could be lost. Help us not to compromise doctrine. Give us that internal fortitude that we need that your hand can be upon us and to strengthen us in those times help us in this lord we love you we praise you we exalt you how good you are to us may you be forever praised in the hearts and in the lives of your people and may you come soon for us lord jesus amen, amen. okay let me back this baby up here oh that'll be all right yeah it worked out just fine okay